Welcome to the Kind Mind Podcast. It's good to be back. I apologize for the long delay between episodes. My mother had a medical emergency at the end of April, and I took some time off to be with her to support the family, and I'm very relieved to share that she's recovering and healing up. We didn't know what was going to happen at the time, but thoughts and prayers and well wishes really made a difference. She was aware of it, and so I thank all of you. So does she. So my mom wanted me to share with you this little message. Dear Kind Mind community, thank you so much for all the prayers and healing energy that you sent me during my recent illness. I felt them and know they helped me to recover. It was unexpected for Todd, so thank you for providing support to him as well. I will keep your love and kindness in my heart, Patty. You know, some good comes out of crisis sometimes. It really gave us an opportunity to be together, everyone in my family, including some extended family. And we got to say things that were meaningful, heartfelt. So whenever that time does come where my parents need to transition, if they go before me, I feel like life gave me an opportunity to say what I need to say and, and, and mentally prepare for the impermanence that is the reality for all of us. And now that I'm back in Illinois, I'm really excited to return to the homestead, 1854, and I appreciate them for hosting us. So our next Kind Mind gathering will be this coming Wednesday, if you hear this in time, June 28th at 7 p.m. Doors open at 6. Food won't be served this time, but there will be drinks available. And it's always uh, free for anybody. Donations are welcome. If you're not in the area or cannot attend in person, but would like to do so online via Zoom, we offer that as an alternative option for members supporting this podcast on Patreon. So just visit patreon.com forward slash kindmind. And this episode is the 91st, so we're still trucking along now. We're nine episodes away from the 100th. So we'll be thinking of something special that we can do to bring people together and celebrate. This episode is called To Be or To Have, or To Behave. In 1976, German social psychologist Eric Fromm published a book which presented the titular question, To Have or To Be. This philosophical inquiry would resurface throughout his work as two distinct modes of existence. He further claimed that Modern society, with its indoctrinated materialism, prefers the having mode. In our conversations and mindfulness practices in this community, we often contemplate the dialectic of being versus doing. The obscure Portuguese poet Fernando Pessoa once wrote in a book, The Message, to have is to tarry. So in a sense, the more you have, the more you have to do, which can weigh you down in terms of freeing your mind. Or a lot of us set out to have something in order to just be able to be, be more without the demand to do. But with societal forces and economic pressures from the top down, or our own habits, or other norms and expectations, often the being never comes. It could be argued that all we really have is our mind 
and our body, our mental health and our physical health, or these two sides of a precious mind-body coin. But even that coin is alone or borrowed. But one or both of these sides can suffer a lot, our mind or our body. However, sometimes we don't realize how pursuing even good things or possessions beyond a healthy, happy mind-body can result in pain. Because those things rise higher and higher in the priority chain, and then they're pursued even at the expense of mental health or physical health. Or we think we acquire the subtle things to boost our wellness. But there's a balance and a law of diminishing returns. Someone wants uh, muscles and fitness. It's good, but without balance, more and more muscular tissue may take a lot of time to maintain. And then why do we want the muscles for work or self-defense? You know, nothing wrong with it. Is it still for health? Or is it unwittingly another way to have something else? Similarly, why do we want to be smarter or clever? Again, want to be healthy and have good thoughts for our mind and the right information. Or again, is it to get something else or someone else? It's just good to know in case one gets lost. If we have the luxury to be present with existence, the right actions can arise naturally. I mean, the right actions in terms of preserving that foundation, mental health, physical health. Sort of like the saying, don't act, but act in Taoist wisdom teachings. We can be aware of tension in our body or in our mind, the fatigue, the insecurities, the fears in the mind, and then respond compassionately. But we can also be with contentment, acceptance, or peace that we might otherwise neglect. But let's see what you think after listening to this episode. Thank you for your time. Hopefully we can connect next week or in the future. I also speak once a month at the Speakeasy Spiritual Community with Maureen Muldoon. That's always on the third Sunday morning on Zoom. And you can find the details and registration for that on my website, michaeltodfink.com. Happy summer solstice. I hope this season brings a balance of relaxation, activity, and time in nature. Take care. Just take a moment to look back on how fast life is changing. I don't think we really have gotten a moment to truly exhale. Not just what we're changing to, not that that's automatically bad, but that the rate of change may be faster than we can adapt to. And that could be a significant source of stress for us. On the positive end, so many life-saving interventions that we've developed in modern times. But the greatness of that also presupposes that death is the worst possible thing. And I think that's kind of a cultural artifact too, that we also measure progress by how we can ward off 
death a little longer. So anyways, um, the other thing I'd like you to consider with all of the development and the rate of change is how much better does all of it make our life? I mean, all of these inventions, you know, like phone and the, the programs, the apps, does it really make us freer? Does it really uncomplicate our life? Do you feel like life is truly easier and that you have an abundance of time now? And if not, you know, why is it just that all of these, all of this progress isn't making life simpler, isn't making life easier, isn't making it less complicated? So if we examine on that existential front, and I, and I think if we're honest, it just evokes a different kind of feeling altogether. So recently I read this book from uh, the German social psychologist, Eric Fromm, called The Art of Being. But in 1976, and it touched on a theme that inspired our talk tonight, but in 1976, he had a prior book uh, that presented the question, the, the title question, to have or to be. And this philosophical inquiry comes up multiple times throughout his work as two distinct modes of existence. And I think in our mindfulness conversations, we explore the dialectic of being versus doing. And so this kind of got me going off in, in a different direction, but I think it still reconnects to doing because the more you have, the more you have to do. All two halves become have-tos, you know what I mean? Just think about it. Anything I want to have is one more thing I have to do to maintain it, to serve it, to keep it, to protect it. This isn't an argument against having. It's just, you know, something to initiate our, our reflection. And I mentioned the, the Portuguese poet, Fernando Pessoa, in his book, Message, he remarks that to have is to tarry. Wondering what that means. I asked my mom, because it's not a word we use too often. What does tarry mean to you? <laughs> to dilly-dally. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, well, what does dilly-dally mean? <laughs> you know? I guess it means kind of to to be a little bit lost or to be a little bit wasteful perhaps and not purposeful. Like, let's get on with it. Get on with what's meaningful. So we often have goals. We have an idea in our mind what would make for a meaningful life. And then in between, there's all this stuff we got to do. I think everybody here would say like, it would be nice to just be more, to have more time for being But if you have too much to do, and if all of the changes aren't helping us have the flexibility or the space or the luxury of being more, then what is the point, you know? So anyways, Fromm points out that this attitude of having or this mode of having is the dominant mode, especially in Western civilization. And it prompts people towards accumulating, collecting, striving, acquiring, ownership, possession. But acquiring physical things and even abstract things has an an agreed upon meaning in uh, the game of uh, world order. What somebody has, not just physically, 
it determines what how you get to live to some extent. Even the idea of of having a home or having land is a construct because land isn't something that you can take with you when you die. It's and same with even borders, borders of states, of countries in the world. There's no real border. These are just social constructs. And then we say that belongs to this country and this belongs to that country and this yard belongs to this person. And then we do that with possessions and then we do that with titles and status and certifications. This person gets to live this way because they have this abstract concept. And I'm not saying that any of that isn't useful, but I think it's important to remember that it's still a construct. And where does it create unnecessary suffering? Where does it create imbalance? Where does, you know, how does it contribute to inequality in the world or um, the imbalance of power? And, and most of all, the disruption of nature in a way that ends up harming ourselves. So because of this materialism, because of this mode of having, mankind pillages the earth, disrupts ecosystems, and ruins the lives of, of countless living things in the name of progress. I think some people are endowed, you could say, with special skills of maintenance. And these people are the kind of people that can actually be responsible for a lot of others and the needs of people and things. But because we're socialized into possessing, those people may want to acquire more and more or have a strong sense of possessiveness. But some of this just comes because of privilege. A person has, quote unquote, has a lot. And they may not have that skill set. They may not be adept at the maintaining. When I think of the great leaders that I've read about in indigenous cultures, they had this skill of stewardship. It wasn't that there was a strong sense of ownership or possession. There was a strong sense of stewardship. And that leader could take care of land, resources, people, communities, could serve. But it's not like that now this idea that I want to have things, like why do I want to have something? What, are, what is the motive for me wanting to have anything at all, physical or abstract? Does it purport to reduce my insecurity? Does it give me a way to define myself? Or is it a coping mechanism in a world of impermanence? Now, I think that with this underlying truth that nothing lasts, the mode of having is a way to deal with that uncomfortable truth. If I can stabilize my environment, my job, my title, my relationships, my career, and my possessions, my location, then I don't have to think about impermanence. But to the extent that you get attached to that stability, which cannot last, you have to suffer. You have to suffer when impermanence comes, if the arc of the having concludes before you do. Am I saying that the goal of spiritual growth is to eliminate these possessions? No, I'm not saying that. But I do think that it could be about 
like spiritual growth could be about transcending possessiveness. And the way that you balance your experiences and relating to your experiences versus the attitude of ownership. And this having has led to really awful things. Even the idea that people could own other people, slavery and human trafficking, which persists to this day in a variety of forms. And even if we could, we could see that, or we could study that and recognize how awful it is, still most people fall somewhere on the spectrum of control. Meaning, even if you think owning somebody is unconscionable, isn't it still true that we wish people would understand us? We wish people would do what we want. Parents wish that you, you'll do what they want. Even when you're an adult kid of your parent, they still try to control your life in different ways, or your spouse does, or your kids do. So it's really interesting to think about that. While we might be able to see the extreme forms of having as it pertains to relating to one another, we might not always see where we fall on the spectrum of control. And that's just feeling like I need to be in control. I need to be more in control of my family. Are we here to control our kids if you're a parent or to be a steward of the kid? To support and to protect the space where the human plant grows, the environment in which one grows, or to own, like this is my kid. If you really reflect, you start to see like those seeds are there. And we call that, and I've talked about this before, we call that social dominance orientation. That to some extent, we think it's okay, like that there's these different kinds of power dynamics. And to the extent that people are okay with it or participate in it, it does correspond with like a higher carbon footprint or more environmental damage or more uh, neglect of how we use resources and wastefulness there. There's a clear uh, cultural example of this difference when comparing the legacies of human relationships with land or ecology. I think I sent out a link in the description to Native Land a website that shows the historically indigenous territories. And what I find fascinating about this is how, how these shapes are so fluid and overlapping. It's more like how you would describe the territories of the defensive uh, baseball team on the field. It's not like if the ball lands here or here, don't touch it. Don't try to catch it. It's basically like, a fluid space like this is generally the center field's territory and generally right and left field and so on but really everybody takes care of the field if center field trips then second base probably has to run out there and go get it you know and it, and it seems to be reflected in these maps and then when you look at modern maps it's like so straight the sense of ownership and the, the rigid boundaries have evolved so differently from that time and it also correlates with our sense of of land ownership land being more like a commodity a property rather than a community so i think that you know these ancient traditions i'm not saying any any particular civilization was perfect i'm just saying like this this aspect's kind of interesting and this is a particularly western idea a, a western view 
that land can be conquered, the nature can be conquered. It's something that we could have. And yet it kind of ignores interdependence and our interrelatedness. But at the same time, I think there is a, a spiritual evolution to this as well, especially in, in the Western world. Previously, and to some extent today, there was a, a very clear hierarchy of power that you could be born into as kings or as caste. And there was slavery and there were feudal systems and there was nothing you could do to be free of that. We also had a rule in the United States, so the one drop rule. If you have one drop of color in your heritage, then you're subclass. And so it makes sense that independence, personal sovereignty, would be a way to break free of that control. Why should I have to see a king or a queen as having divine royal blood? That, that doesn't make sense after some time, after some scientific evolution. And so the idea that I need to reclaim my body and my personal power. I mean, it's another thing to really think about too, even, even today when I'm talking about this social dominance, a person goes to work and isn't really free during that time. When we're trying to reclaim our personal power, we still have to trade our bodies off. Most people do. You have to trade your bodies to an employer, to a project, to a career. Not because that is how you want to be in every moment, but because of the social construct. And in that moment, what is the real range of freedom? Especially like while you're doing the job, while you're at work. You could make an argument that the employer owns your body at that time. You know, and, and, and so it gets really complex. So I still think we're kind of in this evolution, this spiritual evolution where people are saying, wait a minute, I need to reclaim more of my personal power. I mean, I think same with like patriarchal disparities. Women are trying to to reclaim power, maybe not reclaim, never, never had that power, trying to find equality, equal pay for equal work, things like that. So there there's this rebellion against that that inverted power structure. And then it's getting exploited also by corporations, hegemons at the top of this pyramid that are saying, yeah, yeah, you know, it's good. Personal power is great. And then getting going for all the power you can get, all the personal power you can get within a capitalist context allows you to win at monopoly, allows you to actually end up taking everything. And that is the ultimate direction without some rules of the game. Because I'm not saying capitalism is bad, but if you don't mediate it with some other levers like democracy, like welfare or socialism, you get really bad re results. Just if you just do an analysis of all the different modes of states, because think about this, like if it, if it was just a let people work out their own contracts, well, there'd be all kinds of slave-like relationships. Why wouldn't you have children as laborers? If the child will take the job and a person's willing to pay very little and the child will do it, why not hire children? So unless you have some other ameliorating forces 
that would be allowed in, under pure capitalism. There's no rule about capitalism that says if the child's willing to do it for whatever you're offering, that's how it happens. That's why there has to be some other mechanisms in place because that can lead to really disastrous consequences. And what the right amount of all three are is always an experiment, you know. But anyways, for the most part, you want some capitalism because it gets the wheel turning. You could imagine um, a system where people have nothing other than what the government provides. Government has everything, owns everything, and you do the work out of the goodness of your heart. 100% is taxed. With that, the government can make what it makes and provide that to you. And when it was attempted, you know, it didn't work and it resulted in disastrous corruption and revolution. So anyways, it's a, it's a continuous experiment for the developing world to try to figure out what the right combination of these levers are. And you're always dealing with the complications of power dynamics and greed and this propensity to have. But I do think a third iteration of this is when the consequences get to some point where people realize, I have to think more holistically. I have to think in terms of ecology. In um, the social sciences, there's some different theories of human development that depart from some of the psychological theories that involve the environment. One's called um, ecological theory, developed by uh, the scientist Bronfenbrenner. And it, it says that a person belongs to a microsystem. A child belongs to a family system. And what's happening inside of the child affects the parents. We sometimes say these parents were really good and their kid turned out really happy and successful. But other research has shown that if the kid behaves well, some kids are innately quieter innately calmer, innately more respectful or better listeners. There's all different kinds of traits, right? And if the, if that's part of the innate qualities of the child, the parents seem better. Whereas those same parents, if the, if the same baby was like innately finicky or cried more, there would be a cumulative effect of that on the parents, thereby changing the way that they parent. So there's never just like one or the other, like nothing happens in a vacuum. There is a bi-directional relationship from the way a person is and how they interact with the immediate environment called a microsystem. And that microsystem belongs to exosystems and macrosystems. A Latino family was telling me about how growing up, one of the parents could threaten to get the other deported. You can't wield that power in, in a white family because it doesn't mean the same thing because of the, the macro system, because there, there's something going on on a broader cultural level that has a downward pressure into the micro system and into the person. There are also cumulative effects of exposure to the conditions of these different systems as they interact with each other. But if you go into a forest, you can kind of see this for yourself. If you go into a forest and you see this tree grows straight up and strong and this tree is crooked and twisted, you get to see the history. You know why that tree is twisting because this tree is blocking all the light and taking all the resources. 
The difference is human beings move around. So you can't see what you can't see what my environment is truly like just by looking at me and I can't see yours. And that's why we judge. But when we're in the forest, we don't judge as much because it's easy to trace the tree's life back to its origins. You can even look down at the soil. Oh, there's only rocks here. So it has to work a lot harder. That's why it looks like that. That's why it behaves like that. That's called the ecological theory. I think it's, it's really profound when you combine it with a developmental theory, which says over time, those systems are changing. We keep getting new microsystems and new, new life events, new transitions, new trajectories and turning points individually and collectively. The pandemic is a turning point. The world will never be the same after this. But what that means for each individual is a little bit different depending on all of these interacting systems. So I think a third iteration of this spiritual awareness, and I've said it before, is interdependence. That people start relating to each other, relating to the earth, not as totally independent, but as part of um, an inextricably interrelated whole. I'd like you to think about how work or life or responsibilities or relationships would, would change if we brought this awareness into our con consciousness. So what is the difference between having something and being present? Because we have many things that are ours, but how useful are they? And then there may be other things for some of us that it's just in a space. Is maybe it would be useful, or once upon a time it was useful, you know. But we still keep it in the space, or save it for for some future time when it will be useful again. What about having friends versus being friendly? I think this is an interesting one. And here's another way to think about this: we have, we, you know, ideally we have many friendships throughout our life. I have friends from different times in my life. I have had some core friends in childhood, some core friends in high school, some core friends at college, and they're still my friends. But sometimes when you have a friend, you have to do some things because of the pressure of culture. Because the friendship is, is active at this stage in your life. Sometimes it's fine, but other times it is also like the clutter of possessions. And I'm not saying like call up these people and say, you're not my friend anymore. <laughs> but if we conceptualized it as friendliness, I think it, it would be a different way to experience life. You know? Because with the, the idea of friendship as something that belongs to us, there's a lot more to do. And that starts to add up because you make a lot of friends throughout life. And there can come a time where, because I have so many friends, I have to go so many weddings this year and I have to do so many things and give so much support to all of my friends. I don't even know who I am anymore. Again, this doesn't mean to you know make any particular changes. It may just mean like a shift in awareness. Being friendly also kind of changes the possibility or the trajectory of how we engage moment to moment. And you see this all the time. Wherever you go, whatever events people go to, and I try 
to make that different here for us in our, in our gatherings, in our meetings, that I don't want people to come here with three people and leave still only knowing those three people because those are their friends. They came with their friends. But like at a concert, there could be like 10,000 people and it's, you know, hundreds of three, four, five person groups. They go in with their group and they come out with their group and it remains that way. And yet here was this amazing, peaceful opportunity of thousands of people coming together and nobody met anyone new. Why? Because they already have their friends. When I visit college campuses, it's just such a different dynamic with everybody in their phone. If they're in their phone, that means they're actually with their friends. The whole reason we're in our phone is to be with our friends or to be with our family, to be with our people remotely. Anytime I open a social app, that's because that's where my friends are. Even though right in front of me is the, the possibility of friendliness, but I don't always get to experience it because I already have my friends and now I have my way of being with them all of the time. So anyways, uh, having success versus being sincere and having love versus being loving. Again, um, really wise teacher, Anthony DeMello, Indian Catholic priest who had a really interesting perspective on spirituality because of his Vedantic background in Hinduism and, and in India, but his Western spiritual training, he had a way of explaining concepts like love in a way that really, that really makes you reconsider how we pursue these experiences or try to cultivate these experiences. The idea that I love you for a lot of people has to do with the having mode of existence. I want to have love. I want to have a person. And if by loving you, I really mean I'm attracted to you. Because a lot of this is rooted in the superficial, in the appearance. What draws somebody to someone else in the first place? If we don't know everything uh, about that person, if we don't know the eco-biological development of that person, it can only be something on the surface. And so if I say I love you and I mean I'm attracted to you, what we, what we don't really understand is it's saying you attract me, not I love you, but you attract me more, at least at this time, than other people do. And it's not about love coming out of me. It's something that brings me towards you. And then that means that it's conditional. Because if you attract me and the other people don't attract me, that's what makes me love you. And that's what makes me have your love or have you as my love then what happens when that person isn't attracting me in the same way or when somebody else attracts me more? Then the love is exposed, you could say, or, the, or conflated with something else. And that, you know, that leads to a lot of problems, the idea of having and interpreting love in that way. But if love is not something we have or don't have or had but then lost, 
then it's more like that is a state of being. And the love is not something that is reserved or constrained or only accessible to the one that I have, but it's everywhere because it is me. And it just looks different when I relate to you and I relate to you and when I relate to you. There's a, like a different way of expressing the love with the partner, with the friend. But it's powerful to think about how can I be more loving rather than how can I attract love or really how can someone attract me to them and then accept that I'm attracted to them. In that misinterpretation, a lot of couples would race through what you can have. You can have a marriage, you can have a home, you can have kids and you can have a have that and have a life. And then what? And then cruise control? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like there's no cruise control setting, right? And people forget and they and then what happens? You check off all these boxes, and then people are left to live the rest of their lives knowing I have my partner. But as you're saying, if you're not living and being moment to moment, then people just start doing their own thing because they already have the thing, you know? And this, it's after so many years pass, because there's not more things to have and accomplish once you do it. Like maybe the next thing is 30 years from now when we have our retirement or something like that, you know? But when you think, in terms, like Eric Fromm is saying, in terms of being, being loving, then there is a, a, a particular mode of existence and way to show up in life in that microsystem every moment, you're right, every day, every look, every interaction, every touch. Not, I'm not saying like this is like something that we can, you know, never miss or never overlook or never fall back into it. It's just that, that there's a, there's these, there's this interplay of these modes of existence. There's the external pressure to be the other way, I think, because of the materialistic forces, but experiment with that. And not just in your like partnerships, but also just like in all of your interactions, the being friendly or being loving and and just see like what ships for you or if anything ships for you. We can also consider what the motives behind the actions that led us to have what we have, because do you still have those motives? Sometimes we have these motives. So we pursue something, we get it. The motive leaves or, or the desires is extinguished, but we still have the thing. <laughs> You know, um, who was this? Gosh, was it Margaret Atwood that said, I want them, I got them, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Do the things we have impinge on our own sense of being? How do we cope with that now? And does that lead to wanting other things, thereby continuing this cycle? Which makes me think that on an even subtler level, 
why do we want to have knowledge? Some downloads for this brain. But the funny thing about knowledge as another possession is that we can't keep knowledge. We're sometimes, I think, led to believe that knowledge is what you get to keep. I don't, I don't have the math knowledge I had. I once won all these awards in math competitions in eighth grade. So I, once upon a time, I knew a lot about calculus. And, and when I was in the business school at first at Georgetown, uh, I started out with microeconomics and business calculus and derivatives and things like that. And I aced all of those classes. It wasn't until I got more into the arts that I started getting B's and C's <laughs> when, when, when the material became a lot more subjective. When it was math, I could do it. I, and it was either right or wrong. And I really, I enjoyed that. But 25 years later, 30 years later, I don't remember any of that. I'm actually taking a statistics course again after so many, so many years. It's like starting at ground zero. I mean, I didn't have a choice when I was a child. I didn't have a choice. So it says this knowledge is meant to be in your head. You're in school. It's, you know, being handed to you. And it is a privilege. I think, you know, it's a privilege to be able to have access to education, any kind of education, you know, because it's not always, a, it's not always a possession that people can have access to or a tool that everyone can use. So now I feel a real gratitude for all of my educational experiences, not just in school. Grateful for my mentors, grateful for my guru, grateful for my meditation teachers, grateful for my parents, and whatever institutions also or organizations contributed to that. But I still can't keep it. My musical knowledge, since I haven't played this much over the last three years, is fading. I can't remember, can't remember oh, Christopher Parkin, classical guitar teacher, who's, whose instructional method was part of how I learned how to play classical guitar. He said once, if I miss a day of practice, only I know. If I miss two days of practice, the audience knows. Yeah. To keep it, to maintain it, to preserve it. And regardless... It will still have to go. Just like no matter how long you maintain something, it has a lifespan. No matter how well you take care of a car, it won't last forever. With that in mind, the question becomes, well, why would I want to have this knowledge? And whatever knowledge I do have, how is it useful? How can I share it? How can I serve with it? Just like any other resource, like land, like energy, like money. And this will broaden our sense of what it means to be connected to abundance. Not just that because I don't have this particular possession, I can't help, you know. And even if I believed in reincarnation, I don't think that preserves the knowledge. Because if I've already lost my knowledge in this life, why would it magically come back in my next life? I've already forgotten the math, but maybe if I'm reborn, the math knowledge comes back. You know, that doesn't really make sense. What might make sense if, you know, if there's a soul that can continue on or go, go on to another plane, that, yeah, maybe the inclination to learn music again might be there. The, the inclination 
towards science or towards spirituality. And yet, I think we conflate knowledge and wisdom. So knowledge is like a, like a subtle possession. I can't will my knowledge to my inheritors. So it's even more fleeting than the physical possessions. But it's not the same as wisdom because wisdom is a way of seeing. And like love, wisdom speaks more to what we are. When we're seen incorrectly, we're not oriented to our wisdom. When we're seeing things more holistically, more truthfully, then it's really the wisdom of being. Society can look at other peoples from the past and say, well, they used the same tools. They had the same knowledge and the same possessions and the same mode of existence for thousands of years. So they didn't make any progress. So they weren't truly wise. But I think that undermines the truth about wisdom, that because this isn't being reflected in an exploitative model of the earth or relationship with the earth, that there couldn't be some deep realization despite the lack of outer transformation. So that sends us on this wild goose chase to, to acquire knowledge. I think in the same way that we would go after possessions. Sometimes we, we lose sight of what matters, just pursuing knowledge, pursuing the knowledge and the certification of that knowledge. And, and I'm not saying not to do any of those things. All I'm saying is to, in the same way we talk about possessions, well, why do I want this thing? Is it only for my security or is there some good I can do with it? I pursue knowledge. I'm working on a, another degree and things like that slowly. And I'm trying to, and that's why I'm thinking about this, because I had to ask myself like a million times, why am I doing this? But it's the same thing. Why am I reading this book? And it has changed a little bit about how I am when acquiring knowledge. Some change that I made is that I don't bother reading a whole book anymore unless I'm totally enthralled by, by what's happening. If it's fiction, then I might read the whole book. But if it's nonfiction, and I think like two, three chapters in, I got the point, I'm done. Because I don't get any, any additional credit for saying I made it to the last page. <laughs> I just get some like ego boost or some status. I read that, you know? So I've, I've changed that because I don't, I don't want to relate to knowledge in that way. Why I want the knowledge to begin with is because I see it as another avenue of abundance, another way to be plugged in to the goodness of the earth and of community and to be able to help with the redistribution of gifts. Along those lines, I, I, I was also thinking that we can use knowledge by not being so egocentric about it. And it reminded me of this, this little interview I saw with Richard Feynman, the famous physicist who won a Nobel Prize in physics. And he said, I hate it. I hate that I won the Nobel Prize. I hate honors. And he realized this about himself when he was inducted into um, an honor society as a kid 
probably because, you know, he's an exceptional student. And he said, but the, the society, the honor society was essentially a meeting of people to decide who else is worthy of being in the society. And then when he was um, a Nobel physicist and was honored with membership into a, a science society, an honorable science society, he said the majority of the meetings was, what are the criteria to be in our society? And then he said, I don't want the honors. I don't want the awards because the reward was discovering the knowledge. The real reward for a scientist is we found it. This is awesome. And to be able to give it, to be able to gift whatever that knowledge was, either to help to make the world a better place or to help with our understanding of our relationship to the universe. So I really love that. Another point of delineation here is that between the East and the West, you have systems of being like martial arts, Tai Chi, Aikido, Karate, all these different traditions, you know, really emphasized being, being in your body, also like yoga. And it wasn't until like the late 1800s, uh, Dr. Jigoro Kano in Japan created a two belt system. You might think that the belts go back thousands of years or hundreds of years of martial arts traditions. They don't go back far at all. One Japanese martial artist doctor said, I want to have a different belt for the teachers and the students so the student can find the teacher. And then a European martial artist in the 1900s said, let's make a whole system where you got to like get to like a video game, the next rank, and we'll know and that will keep people in the schools and buying more schools and, and commercialize it and we'll export it to, the, to America. And the same thing happened with yoga. Yoga was a way of being in your body, relating to your body, moving in your body. And then it, be, it was commercially exported to the West and it was something that you could have. You can have a good body now. You can have a beautiful body, a lustrous body. I want to read to you um, two poems that I think illustrate this dichotomy being and having and also the in different modes of existence as they kind of played out in the spiritualities of east and west not that i think one needs to be eliminated or anything like that but just that there this dialectic ought to be appreciated more one poem is from basho some of you may have heard of basho or either from previous meetings or if you ever get a chance check out the podcast called um Oh, Seek Elegance, Not Luxury is a timeline podcast. There's multiple Basho poems. Basho was a Japanese haiku master. The haiku typically has three lines and no first person. So I'll re read one to you. Looking carefully, seeing the Nazuma blooming by the hedge. It sounds so basic, so simple. When you read some of these in a collection of Basho, the most famous one is um, an ancient pond, a frog jumps in, the splash of water. Something can really start to shift in you. It's almost like a, a Zen koan, where you realize that if you pay closer attention, there's just seeing, there's just hearing. There's just splashing. There's just relating. 
And in between all that, we superimpose me. I must be seen. I must be listening. But if there's enough stillness, and Basho's inviting the reader into this experience by keeping it as simple and as lucid as possible. Anyways, if you contrast that with an Alfred Lord Tennyson poem, and Eric Fromm and also the Zen master D.T. Suzuki would sometimes read these two poems to contrast sort of the, the different spirits of being and having. Here's the Tennyson poem. Flower in the crannied wall, I pluck you out of the crannies, hold you here, root and all, in my hand. Little flower, but if I could understand what you are, root and all, and all in all, I should know what God and man is. You know, it has its own beauty, but what happens in this poem? Just to have it. But in the name of knowledge, if I could know you, I could, I could have more knowledge. So it's worth ripping you out. It's worth destroying you. That sense of urgency is what drives us and what sustains the having mode. As if mystery is some ill in the world and doesn't have its own beauty. Like, I have to alleviate this uncertainty. I have to cure my mystery. But there were Western philosophers like Kierkegaard who you know, expressed that mystery itself is it. You are mystery. You're not a problem to be solved. Life isn't a problem to be solved. It's a mystery to be lived. So in the other one, Basho is just being, just relating. There's no trust in the aggressiveness of trying to have knowledge. That's what I mean by even the pursuit of knowledge can be destructive. The having of knowledge can be as disruptive as the exploitation of the earth. And they kind of go hand in hand. And we just don't always think of the knowing. I mean, it informs so much of our research. Cut up the animals do whatever we want to the other life form, the low, lower life forms, because we have power over them. Which is probably why so many of our science fiction novels and films have always portrayed the visitors from outer space as hostile, looking to steal our resources or abduct us and experiment with us because it's a reflection of mankind's own superiority and inferiority complexes. The flower poems really remind me of something Paulo Coelho said, Portuguese author, and Osho said something similar that if you love a flower, don't pick it up because it will cease to be what you love. Love isn't about possession or the heaven that we're talking about. Love is about appreciation. And in our attempts to control, to keep, to have, we suffocate what we love, when we choke the life out of the love. It's also a very Western position to conclude that there's no point to life if we can't achieve something, if we can't know something. And in the achievement is where we think we'll find our meaning. 
that inability to be with mystery, to be still, to be present. But this word be, the first person uh, of be is am, I am. And second and plural condition, the word is are, as in you are or they are. Third person is is. He is, she is. But be is also an imperative verb, like in the Bible, be still and know God. In Sanskrit, I am is expressed in the word aham. And there are four statements in the Upanishads. These are the, the wisdom parts, spiritual wisdom part of the Vedas. One of them is tatomasi, which means you are that. And another one is ahambras brahmasmi, which is like, I am that I am in the Old Testament. Aham brahmasmi, the I am and Brahman means I am Brahman. Brahman means the supreme reality. I am the supreme reality. I'm not totally separate. But another definition of aham is interesting. It means abeda or beta abeda. Abeda means not different from the person is not different from God or the universe. And at the same time, the person is different from God or the universe. So it's a paradox because on the one hand, you are there and I'm here. And because that's my experience, I ought to respect it. If I just go around saying, we're all one, whatever I do to you, I'm doing myself. So it's all good. <laughs> There'll be problems. But then to, to treat it only that way and not really appreciate that even though I can't perceive it, or maybe I don't perceive it all the time, there is an underlying harmony or unity to everything. Also, what's interesting about aham is that it's made up of three sounds, ah, ha, and m. The ah represents Shiva, a god in the trinity of Hinduism. But Shiva is also the activating principle of life, like the life force, like prana. If you remove the I in the word Shiva, it becomes Shava. And anybody know what Shavasana means in yoga? It's the corpse pose. Because if you remove the E, the body has no soul. You add the E, the body becomes Shiva, infused with the animating spirit. That's A. The ha is Shakti, or Shiva's divine consort. But in this sense, it's nature. When the spirit moves or dances with nature, you get the world. And the m represents Bindu, uh, or Bijam, which is a seed. So when those two energies, or masculine and feminine, come together, they produce a seed. And the seed becomes the continuation of life. However, if you reverse the word aham, which is me, if you reverse it, it becomes maha. Maha means supreme, supreme wisdom. Going backwards, each merges into the other, back from into the singularity, like reversing the Big Bang, and everything is one. And that's what you know, is, is on the other side of the sense of Ainas. Sense of Ainas could be Peda, which means a separate differentiated person. 
and or abheda, which is no difference, no multiplicity. Where there was always always seemingly separateness, there was there was truly unity. And have have comes from German haben. That meant to grasp. There's a, a Proto-Indo-European sound prior to haben, which is cap. Cap evolved to haben and have in, in English. That cap sound means to grasp. Because really what, what we have, what we could truly say we have, is what you can hold. If the thing I have is over in my house, that's just an idea, right? We, we talked about that. I just have it in my mind. The partner that I have that's not here right now, that's a mental idea. We share it. I share it. The partner shares it. And it's beautiful. But if I'm not appreciating it in any particular moment, where is the have? Where, where is it? But when it's in my hand, it means I'm truly with it. So I really like that, especially because in the, in the older times, in ancient times, to have more was an obvious burden. To take more than you really needed, you had to carry. There wasn't storage units back then. And what we can hold in our hand ought to be what, what we really understand to be our true possessions. But more implicitly, it refers to what we metaphorically hold on to or cling to in our mind. And so this word cap or grasping is where we get words like captive, captured, captivate. So the thing is that whatever we cling to or try to grasp, not just with our hands, with our mind, it captures us. To that extent, we're also a prisoner because of our attachment. And when you bring this dialectic together or live this paradox, the being mode and the having, because we said, yeah, we have some things, we use those things, but if we're trying to grow spiritually, we want to use those things in a way that's kind to ourselves and others. But another way that I think of this balance or this dialectic is just simply bringing the two words together. Be and have becomes behave, but not behave in the moral sense, behave in the sense that it means I can restrain myself or center myself. It means I can hold on to my being while having shit. (laughs) (laughs) I have this, I have that, I have a relationship, but I don't lose the wisdom of the impermanence. And in that way, I go about learning growing, experiencing, relating. But I never lose the centeredness when I behave in this in this mode that Fromm and others have presented. When I behave in alignment with the light of impermanence and doing those things, I'm balancing the being and the doing. I know that it's temporary. I know that I can't really take it with me, not even my knowledge. And so then it can inspire us to do so in a way that prioritizes kindness, goodness, lovingness. Greatest samurai, supposedly, of history, 
Miyamoto Musashi, who I've talked about before when we talked about concentration in the past, he had a quote, the best way to get what you want to have is to deserve it. I like this because it's a paradox. If you are focusing on the deserving, you have to let go of the having. When you're fixated on the having, you give up the deserving and you exploit or you take or you rip the flower out by the root. The deserving means, how can I be loving? What does it mean to be present? What does it mean to be wise? Instead of having a friend, what does it mean for me to be a friend, to be friendly, to be non-judgmental, to be safe for others to approach? And by the prioritization of the deserving, the beingness, there's a tacit trust in life, in the universe, that whatever you need to have, you'll have. 